Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. As you turn there, just want to echo what Ben said earlier. We'd love for those of you who are newer to the church uh, to be able to uh, come to Discovering Bethany. I know that there are quite a few families who, and individuals who are newer to the church. I was even able to, to meet uh, some of you this morning and uh, apologize for some short conversations I had as there was a lot going on. But uh, we're excited that, that God is bringing uh, people into our, our church body and uh, would, would love as the Lord uh, leads for you to become a, a part of our fellowship, to become members. And, and so that Discovering Bethany class, uh, Dave Robinson and I will be teaching it. It's in the, the gym, uh, and that, that'll be beginning next Sunday and the f- Sunday following. And so uh, you can sign up for that on the Church Center app or on the church website or contact the church office and would love to have you be a part of that. Or you can just show up. That's, that works too. Next, next uh, Sunday morning. Uh, I've mentioned that this is, uh, this is a hard section of the book of Acts. You know, whenever we started the book of Acts, uh, before we began, I'd kind of laid out all the different potential sermons that would be in the book of Acts, kind of each paragraph, each story. And, and when I came to, to this section, um, this, in fact, this, this passage... Acts 25, verses 13 through 27, at, at the very beginning, years ago, I just, you know, for a lot of the, the passages, I'd written out some themes and kind of what the, the, the sermon topic would be. And here, I just wrote, Festus presents Paul to Agrippa, which isn't a great sermon topic. You know, that's just basically the ESV headline in uh, that, that paragraph. And so uh, a couple months ago, I looked at this section again. And said, so now, where, where was I when these, these different notes, what were the different sermon topics and over the next few months? And I saw that again, uh, Festus presents Paul to Agrippa. I'm like, oh, I got to work on that. And so I spent some time working on some different sections. And then a few weeks ago, I looked at this section. And again, I saw I'd just written, Festus presents Paul to Agrippa. And I thought, okay, we got some work to do. Uh, what exactly is going on here? What, what, is, what, what is Luke trying to tell us as he has uh, Festus present Paul to Agrippa and present his case. We see him give his testimony in chapter 26. We see Paul's testimony presented for the third time in the book of Acts. But what is Luke trying to do here as he writes this section of the book of Acts, setting up Paul's testimony? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to see the the confusion that exists on the part of Festus as, as he thinks about, what do I do with this guy, Paul? So we're reading verses 13 through 27, and if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I 
supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we this morning confess our lack of ability to present our, our testimonies to a lost world with, with complete blamelessness. We, we recognize our sin. We recognize that as we proclaim the gospel to others, we, we fall short of, of who you've created us to be, who you have given us the ability to, to be in your son Jesus. And so, we confess that. We ask for your continued grace and sustaining work in our lives. We pray that in your kindness, you would give us the, the boldness to proclaim the good news of your son Jesus before the, the people to whom you've given us the opportunity to present the gospel. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. It was 112 A.D., and a ruler named Pliny the Younger faced a problem. Uh, Pliny the Younger was a ruler in Bithynia, which is in modern-day Turkey, and his, his problem was what to do with the Christians. The Christians were accused of all sorts of crimes in the Roman Empire. They were, they were accused of being cannibals because it was said they ate of the flesh and they, they drank blood. They were accused of being atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. They, they certainly didn't participate in emperor worship. And so there were all these charges of crimes laid against the, the Christians. And Pliny the Younger, in 112 AD, had a problem. And he wrote to the emperor, Emperor Trahan, saying, Hey, I, I need your help knowing what to do. The problem, Pliny said, is that there has been a, a pamphlet, an anonymous pamphlet that was published and in this pamphlet were a, a list of, of names of people who were accused of being Christians. And I, I don't know what to do. There are kind of three categories of, of people that have been, uh, have been listed in this, in this pamphlet that I've brought to be, to be judged by me. And the, the first group of people are people who say these charges are not true. 
I'm not a Christian now, I never was a Christian, and Pliny writes, what I've done with them is this. I told them they needed to worship this image of you, the emperor. And if they did that, I said, now you need to curse Christ, something I have been assured that no genuine Christian will do. Once they did that, I let this first group go. But there, there's a second group. And, and the second group are, are people who say, yeah, I used to be a Christian, but I'm, I'm not any longer. And once the edict was passed, banning secret societies, we stopped being Christians and plenty of rights. As I in, interrogated them, I found that they hadn't really done anything wrong. In fact, when they had met together, when these, the second group who said they were no longer Christians had met as Christians, even then it seemed like they were doing some pretty harmless stuff. They had worshipped this guy Jesus as a god. They had not engaged in cannibalism. They had simply uh, ate, ate normal food together. They had not gotten together to commit any crimes. In fact, when they got together, they vowed not to commit crimes like theft and robbery and, and, and adultery. And so it really seemed pretty harmless. Just to be sure, I, I tortured a couple of them, but even they seemed like there was, there was nothing going on, right? Terrible. That was the second group. But it's, it's this third group, Plenty writes, that really gives me the headaches. This third group that's accused of being Christians re refuses to recant. He says, what I've done, emperors, is this. I've given them, I give them three opportunities to deny Christ. And if they refuse on that, that third opportunity to deny Christ, to, to curse him, then I have them executed. He says, I'm not quite sure what they've done wrong, but certainly their obstinacy needs to be punished. The emperor writes back, he says, I think you're doing the right thing. Don't seek out to pursue Christians. They're not really causing all that much harm. Don't, don't seek to persecute them. But if someone is presented as a Christian and if they refuse to recant, then yeah, punish them. Plenty, when he wrote to the emperor, said that you know, the problem is this. Many persons of all ages and classes and of both sexes are being put in peril by accusation. In other words, more and more people are being accused of being Christians. The contagion of this superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. But, Pliny writes, I, I'm confident that we can deal with this thing and that worship in the temple of the Romans will, in the temples of the Romans will, flourish and continue. Well, it's 2,000 years later. And Pliny's op optimism that worship in Roman temples would continue has, has proven to be unfounded. Worship of, of Christ, however, continues. What also continues, though, is confusion. The, the cultures in which Christians find themselves are confused sometimes about what to do with us. Now, we're not accused of cannibalism any longer, as, as far as I know, uh, but there's still all sorts of accusations that are leveled against Christians, right? In our culture, we are accused of the, the worst crime of all, the, the crime of intolerance, the crime of our culture's age, this age. 
as we call people to submission of, of to, to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're calling them to, to forsake all other gods. And as, and as we do so, we're accused of all sorts of, of crimes related to intolerance. We, we hate this group, or we hate that group, or we are abusive to this group because we call people to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are all sorts of assumptions that people make about Christians based upon the caricature that's, that's created of Christians. And let's be clear, Christians, like all people, are affected by the fall. And there are certainly some things we do that don't make our, our task any easier to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, but we know this. We know that many of the things that people accuse Christians of being guilty of are, are simply not true. And so what's our goal? Our goal is to faithfully witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that perhaps we're trying to do is to create a little bit of confusion in our culture's mind, right? Because our, our culture may have this perception of, of Christians. In the, the first century, they were these cannibalistic atheists. And then they, they ran into to real Christians and say, okay, uh, what, what I thought was true of Christians isn't true of what I'm actually seeing. And that, that's what we want to create in our culture as well. This, this caricature of Christians, we want to, to create some confusion in the minds of the people that we're sharing the gospel with as, as they encounter us and they talk to us and we live lives together. They say, okay, what, what I thought was true of Christians doesn't seem to be what's actually true of Christians. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is going to give his testimony. He's going to proclaim some, some truths about about who Jesus Christ is and how Christ changed his life and the mission that he has now. But what I want us to see, and this is what's happening at the end of chapter 25, is there are some things that are true before he begins that testimony. There are, there are some things that are, that are true of this, this, this setting in which he's able to present the gospel, and that's what I want us to think about this morning as we come to the end of chapter 25. And here's some things that have taken place that allow this gospel conversation that Paul engages in with Festus and Agrippa and Bernice to, to take place. Here's, here's the main idea that I want us to, to think about this morning. We'll talk about testimonies next week and the following week, but here's what I want us to see this morning. God uses lives that are above reproach and gospel-focused to create the ideal conditions in which we can proclaim our testimony. God uses lives that are above reproach, that are gospel-focused, that are, that are fixated on proclaiming the hope of the gospel, God uses these lives to create ideal conditions in which we can proclaim our testimony. Only God saves, right? You and I cannot save anyone. Only God saves. But one of the means that God uses to draw men and women and children to himself is by his, his followers living lives that are consistent with the gospel that they're proclaiming. Four things here that I want us to see that are in place as Paul begins his testimony. Four realities that are in place as Paul begins his testimony in chapter 26. Here are the four things. Number one, first of all, there are resilient rumors. As Paul begins his testimony, we're still dealing with these resilient rumors. Look at your, your Bibles Verse 25, uh, chapter 25, verse 13. Remember where we are. Paul has just a, appealed to Caesar, and Festus has, 
has declared, you've appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you'll go. Now we come to verse 13. Some days have had passed, so some, some time goes by. And it says, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, what exactly is taking place? You remember Festus has just been appointed governor. And so Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea to, to greet him and congratulate him on his appointment. Who are Agrippa and Bernice? Well, Agrippa here is... Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. It's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He is uh, not as uh, prestigious as his great-grandfather. He's not even as prestigious as his father, Agrippa I, we encountered in Acts chapter 12, the Agrippa who had uh, James uh, martyred and Peter in prison. So his authority isn't as broad, but he is given some territory to to rule over. It's not as as large as his father or grandfather's territory, but he's given this territory. And he's called king of the Jews, but actually most of his, of his authority is over Gentiles. But they do give him the authority to appoint the priests, and so he has some authority over the temple. And because of his quasi-Jewish heritage, he's considered that and styles himself as king of the Jews. Later, We'll learn that he is completely loyal to Rome, despite his pretensions of being the Jewish king. He completely sides with Rome in the Jewish revolt and is viewed as a traitor. He is the end of the Herodian line that we've studied so much about in the book of Acts. Bernice here is his sister. Uh, she had been married to, to a ruler in Cilicia, but there are all sorts of scandalous rumors about her. She would actually also be linked romantically to the emperor Titus before he becomes emperor. He, they, they, they part ways as he becomes emperor because of the anti-Semitic views of many Romans, and she is, uh, she's arriving here with her brother Agrippa. They, of course, are also related to Drusilla that we encountered in our uh, previous study of of Felix, uh, Felix's wife. Festus here, it says in verse 14, as they stay there many days, uh, Festus, they're they're talking about many different things. At some point, the text tells us, they talk about Paul. And it says in verse 14 that Festus lays out Paul's case before the king. And he says, look, there's, there's a guy that was left prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, remember, we talked about this before, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews in Jerusalem laid out their case against them, asking for a sentence of condemnation. I said, no, we can't do that here. You need to come to, to Caesarea because, verse 16, it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused meets the accusers face-to-face and can, can give it a defense against the charges that are laid out against him. So what is Festus doing? Festus, as he lays out this case to Agrippa and talks to him about Paul, is saying, look, I, I need your help here. And as he lays out the case to Agrippa, he's doing what we've seen characters and, and people in this, this story do over and over again. He's kind of making himself look good, right? Look, there's this problem. It was Felix, didn't deal with everything he needed to deal with, and so I've got this, this lingering problem of Paul, and, and the Jews were really upset at him, and, and, and they, they didn't lay out a very orderly case against them, but as a, as a Roman, I, I upheld Roman law, and I, I, st- I stood for the, the principles of Roman justice. There was a phrase, a Latin phrase, equitus romana, the, the Roman fairness was held in high esteem, and, and Festus is saying, I've, I've upheld that, right? That's, that's who I am, and I need your help in in dealing with this. Now, 
what I want us to see as we come to these verses, verses 13 through 16, even though Paul continues to be the victim of these accusations that the Jews have made against him, even as these rumors are resilient about what Paul has done and, and the condemnation that he deserves and the, the clamoring that still we saw last week is, or two weeks ago is still the, the clamoring that's still taking place de- desiring Paul to be executed for his faithfulness to the gospel, even though those rumors are resilient, there's a ray of light here in the story of Agrippa and Festus. Not everyone believes the rumors. Festus, he's cowardly. He's not sure what to do about these rumors and these accusations. He doesn't want to anger the Jews, but he's having a hard time trying to find out exactly what it is that Paul is supposed to have done. Furthermore, in God's providence, Festus and Agrippa actually want to hear what Paul has to say. Now, here's here's the application to you and me. It may sometimes feel like in this culture that you and I live in that no one really wants to hear what we have to say. That your boss, that your family members, that your neighbor, have, they've all made up their minds about Christianity and nothing you can say is, is really going to change their minds and so why bother even trying? That's not a biblical attitude to have. Well, people already know what I believe, and people have already made up their mind. There's these resilient rumors. Yeah, that's true. We live in a culture in which large groups of people have already made up their minds about what Christianity is and about who Jesus Christ is. That doesn't mean that we know everything about where every person is in their spiritual journey. We don't know what God is doing in people's hearts. We are going to find sympathetic audiences in very unlikely places sometimes. So we have to be faithful. There's a story you may have heard about a few years ago. Uh, Penn Gillette, he's part of the famous uh, Penn and Teller uh, magic act. And uh, he told this story, kind of gave a video story one time. And, and he's, a, he's a committed atheist, uh, uh, Penn Gillette is. But he tells the story of a man who one time gave him a Bible. Listen, listen to what he says, this, this committed atheist. He says, it was actually really wonderful. I, I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive. He, he looked me right in the eyes, and he was truly compliment, complimentary. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind. He was nice. He was sane. He looked me in the eyes, and he talked to me, and then he gave me the Bible. And he says, I, I don't respect people who claim to be Christians and don't share the gospel at all. Listen to these words of an atheist. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, or the the person's an atheist and they don't want you to proselytize, and they want you to just leave them alone to keep their religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate someone, he says, to not proselytize, to not share the gospel? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? 
If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, he says, is more important than that scenario. What incredible words from an avowed atheist. What convicting words from an atheist to us. And maybe you feel it's overwhelming, it's, it's hopeless. Uh, if, if I share the gospel with this person, they're not going to appreciate it. It's going to damage our relationship. How much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? Paul is going to share the gospel in the context of resilient rumors, of, 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 a, of a culture that's decidedly against the claims of Jesus Christ, and he's going to persevere and do so anyway. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed, perhaps you feel hopeless when you think about our culture's response to biblical Christianity, but here's a couple thoughts that might encourage you. One, don't assume, don't assume that everyone thinks the same way about Christianity. Well, all the media feel this way, or all the, the politicians in Illinois are this way, or all the people at my school are this way, or all the people in my family are that way. Don't assume you know what people believe about Christianity. Don't assume that, that people have made up their minds about what Christianity is all about. And secondly, don't assume that you know what God is or is not doing in the heart of a person with whom you're going to share the gospel. You don't know what crisis a person may be going through as you have the opportunity to, to speak the gospel into their lives. Don't assume you know what God is doing. Instead, be prayerful. As we think about the, the culture in which we share the gospel, be it big culture or little cultures of our families, of our, of our friend circles, be prayerful. Be constantly in prayer that God would lead you to those who will give you the opportunity to, to, to share the gospel, who will listen, and, and be obedient to God's call to proclaim the gospel. Yes, it's overwhelming, but by God's common grace, there are going to be people in your life who, who will not entertain the rumors but are willing to inspect to see if these things are so. Which brings us to the next point, right? There's also, as Paul presents, prepares to present the, the, his testimony, there are also blameless believers. Festus continues talking to Agrippa. He says, so <clears throat> when they came together here, I, I made no delay. Again, he's kind of making himself look good here, right? But on the next day, I, I took my seat on the tribunal, and I ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charges in his case of such evils as I suppose. So I was on the ball, verse 17, and the accuser's case was underwhelming, verse 18. He says they, they didn't bring any evils, and, and what he means there, are, there, there were no violations of Roman law that rose to the level of, of, of con, the, the, the sentence of death, of, of condemnation. He was not guilty of, of anything that would be a violation of Roman law. And again, we, we've seen this throughout this, this section, that all sorts of accusations and slanders are, are hurled against Paul. In, in the last uh, uh, paragraph, we talked about these, these oppressive charges that were brought down against him, and, and none of these things can be proved, and Festus recognizes that. And so, once again, there's this, stated or implied verdict of, of innocence. We've seen this throughout. Lysias, verse 
29 of chapter 23. No accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Felix uh, puts him off and wants a bribe because he recognizes his innocence. Festus here in verse 18. Later in verse 25, we'll talk about his innocence. Agrippa in chapter 26, verses 31 through 32, we'll talk about his innocence. Over and over again, what, is, what happens? Paul is, is seen as blameless by these people who inspect these claims. Paul's conduct, catch this, Paul's conduct continues to undermine his accuser's case. What people are saying about him just doesn't match what these men can see with their own eyes. Brothers and sisters, there are always going to be unfair accusations. We are always going to find ourselves in a world that doesn't love our God. We are always, and as we align ourselves with him faithfully, we are always going to find ourselves victims of injustice. Not, not constantly, not every moment, but, but it's, it's going to be a consistent theme that believers are going to be the, the victims of injustice. And our prayer, our prayer is that we're, we're blameless in the midst of that, right? That we respond with, with spirit-filled gentleness. We're, we're called to, to spirit-filled gentleness. Now, it's not surprising that the world confuses gentleness with weakness, but what is, quite frankly, surprising to me is that Christians confuse gentleness with weakness. But what has God called us to? Being, being blameless and before him as we proclaim the gospel. Gentle, blameless conduct requires courage and fortitude. There are so many great lines in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a, a novel set in Alabama in 1936, and Atticus Finch is a, a lawyer who has been charged by, by the town, given the responsibility of defending a black man accused of a crime he didn't commit, and, and Atticus Finch's courage and his, his, his refusal to respond in the same way in which evil people are, are treating him and, and his client, his, his quiet courage and fortitude creates this, this tension in the novel, and his daughter asks if he's going to win the case, and he says, no. She says, why do it then? He says, simply because we were licked a hundred years before we started, is no reason for us not to try to win. And later in the book, his sister is angry at the town for what they're putting her brother through as, as he continues to defend this innocent man at the, and, and suffer from all these, these uh, unfair accusations and this, this hatred. And, and she asks her friend, she says, what else do they want from him? They're perfectly willing to let him wreck his health doing what they're afraid to do. And her friend says these words that are so true. She says, whether our town knows it or not, we're paying the highest tribute we can pay a man. We trust him to do right. It's that simple. Even an unbelieving world, by God's common grace, recognizes at times, by God's common grace, injustice. They can recognize the, the, the courage of obedience. And this is the courage of a Christian 
who's willing to do the right thing in the face of injustice. Beloved, this is the quiet courage to which God calls us. If it were easy to persevere in the face of opposition, to be blameless, then it wouldn't be a sign that that God has done a miraculous work in our our hearts. But the reality is is that it is incredibly difficult to be gentle, to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives manifested in the midst of injustice. That's a sign that God has transformed our hearts. The condition in which Paul shares the gospel by God's grace, he's blameless before his accusers. Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 5, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Verse 16, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? There isn't anything remarkable. There isn't anything God induced about loving those who love you. The sign of God's work in our lives is when we have love for those who mistreat us. A couple thoughts. Depravity is real, right? The people with whom we share the gospel are depraved. But so were we. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, God showed his, shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so, brothers and sisters, understand this. The deeds of the flesh are not to be the tools we employ to draw men and women to faith in Christ. The deeds of the flesh are not the tools that God calls us to use to draw men and women to himself. Pride, boastful talk, anger coming from a place of self-righteousness, hatred, those are not the deeds of the flesh that God calls us to use. They're not the weapons that God calls us to use in our spiritual battle to draw men and women to himself. Instead, God uses the righteousness of believers to draw the unrighteous to himself. This is what an unbelieving world, by God's grace, finds so compelling. And what a miracle that God uses to, to draw, uses us to draw men and women to himself. Listen to a couple verses here. Meditate on these. One, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Listen to what Peter writes. He says, Beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners... And exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Isn't that a beautiful idea? That that as people accuse us of things that aren't true, we, we live our lives in an honorable way by the, by the working of the Holy Spirit. We abstain from the passions of the flesh. Those are the things that wage war against our soul. Our conduct is excellent among the Gentiles. And as they speak against us as evildoers, they say, okay, what, what I'm saying is true of them isn't, isn't the same as what I'm seeing in, in their lives. They see our good deeds, and then they glorify God on the day of visitation. Paul would say this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, his opponents with gentleness, so that God perhaps may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That gentleness is, is not a weakness. A, a weak person is not able to respond to injustice with kindness. In fact, 
It's impossible for us to do so on our own strength. It's impossible apart from the power of the gospel, which brings us to the third area I want us to consider that's, that's true right now. There are resilient rumors, there's a blameless believer here, and there are confessing Christians. We see a confessing, Christians in ver- a, confession, a confessing Christian in verse 19. Again, this is Festus continuing to talk to Agrippa. And, and, and let me go back and give the context here again. He says, verse 18, they, they stood up and the accusers, and they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. In verse 19, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. The word he uses there for religion is like a, a word that kind of means superstition. He says they had a dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, this guy Jesus. He's dead, but Paul asserts, claims, proclaims as alive. Festus's understanding of the matter is this. The issue here that Paul has with, with these accusers is about if Jesus is dead or alive. The accusers say he's dead. Festus, he thinks he's dead. But he recognizes this, that the, the point of contention isn't about Paul's righteousness or unright, or is not, not about any, any sort of crime he's committed. The central issue that Festus realizes that these guys have against Paul is that Paul keeps saying that this guy Jesus is alive. How wonderful would it be if everyone's issue with us boiled down to that? We unflinchingly, obstinately, persistently keep saying Jesus is alive, and therefore we need to worship him and submit to him as Lord and Savior. What's at stake here? They say Jesus is dead. Paul asserts Jesus to be alive. This is the foundational issue. This is the key issue that all people need to grapple with. And this is going to take place in the next chapter as Paul confesses his gospel. We'll spend time on that next week. But how beautiful would it be if as confessing Christians, we kept bringing the issue to that point. We didn't get distracted by this issue. We didn't get distracted by this issue that we want to argue with people. But over and over again, we continue to come to this point. Is Jesus alive or dead? If he's dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied because we are basing our entire lives on something that isn't true. But if he is alive, then he is Lord and Savior over all. And we must call all people to repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. That's the condition we want to create as we enter into conversations with people. People look at us and say, that's the guy that keeps saying that Jesus is alive. That's the woman who lives her life in complete fidelity to this idea that Jesus is Lord. That's the type of conversation we want to have with people. What message sometimes competes for primacy in your soul? Maybe you're really into exercise and how exercise changes your life or a nutritional supplement or maybe sports or, or, or some sort of other issue, some sort of hot button topic that you love to, to talk about with people. Those things aren't necessarily bad to care about. 
but let's bleed the gospel. Let's let the gospel be the, the cause of offense. Christians are confessors. Yeah, we're blameless. We want to live blameless lives, but we're not moralists. We're not constantly trying to call people to morality. Well, thanks for letting me be gone last week. We had a great time in, in Houston with our uh, son-in-law and daughter. Just, just it's uh, an amazing privilege to get to watch your kids start their own lives, and, and they're, they're just doing a, a, a tremendous job of that, and I'm very grateful to God for that. But we were, we were talking, and it's, I, I, some of you, I'm sure some of you have experienced this. As you start talking with your kids who are older about what their lives were like as they were younger, you start hearing some things about your parenting that you were kind of blind to at the time. And so... Uh, Hannah, Hannah was, was sharing some things, and she goes, you know, you guys made a lot of mistakes as your parents. And I, I was trying to just listen, but I want to do some follow-up questions. Go on. Like, be, 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 be specific. She says, um, but it was, hard, it was hard to be upset at you. She said, because you were so quick to confess and, and talk about your hope in Christ. What a, what, a, what a grace of God that our relationship with her wasn't based upon rules, right? That we didn't constantly say, well, this is the rule, and this is the rule, and this is the, and this. But constantly in our parenting, what we're trying to do, look, we just have to point you to the most central truth. Jesus is alive. I'm a sinner. I have failed. Let's confess Christ together. That's what we want to do in our parenting. That's what we want to do in our in our. In our, in our work relationships, that's what we want to do in our church relationships. We want to constantly say, look, all these other things we're going to fail at. All these other things are not the most essential issue. The most essential issue is, look, here is who Jesus Christ is. We deserve punishment. He is alive. We want to confess him as our Lord and Savior. The blameless life that we live is not a blameless life that we live on our own strength. We are those who have needed salvation, and so we have come to Jesus Christ. We have repented of our sins. We've received new life in him, and now we're able to live that blameless life. The blameless life is not something that comes from ourselves. The blameless life is something that God creates within us so that we're above reproach as we confess Christ. Brings us to the last thing here. There's a wondering world. Wondering this is, this is the tension we want to get people to in our culture. It's a key point in this section. It, it begins and ends with people saying, we're not, with, with Festus particularly saying, I don't know what to do with this guy. Begins, verse 20, I'm at a, I was at a loss how to investigate these questions. But he asked me if we wanted to go to Jerusalem and uh, Paul said, no, we wanted to be kept in custody for the decision of emperor. And so I said, okay, Agrippa, the king says to Festus, well, I'm going to hear him myself. And Festus says, tomorrow you will. Or I would say to you, next week you will. Next week we'll look at what Paul has to say to Agrippa and Festus. But look at verse 23. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with, with great pomp. There's, there's all this festivities as they arrogantly enter the audience hall. There's military tribunes. There's a prominent men of the city of Caesarea. So this is a, this is a very significant 
crowd. And then Festus commands that Paul be brought in. Verse 24, Festus begins to, to lay out the case. Basically say, look, I, I hope you can help me, Agrippa. He says what, things that we've already talked about both this morning and previous weeks. Here's this guy. This is the guy that all the Jewish people have petitioned me about. Nobody likes him. Now the Jews like him. They wanted him to, you know, both in Jerusalem and here, they were shouting they ought not to live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but he wanted to go to Caesar, and so I've, I've, I've ordered that. But here's the problem. As I send him to Caesar, I've got to write something down. And I don't know what to write down. I mean, he hasn't done anything. Dear Caesar, here's Paul. XOXO Festus. I mean, what, what does he write? I mean, he's like me coming to this passage over and over again. Paul, you know, Festus presents Paul to Agrippa. I, I don't know what to do. What do I do with this? He... Fill in the blank. I got nothing. Agrippa, let's listen to him and maybe you can help me. That's the tension we want to create in the world. We can't save anyone. Only God saves, right? But by God's grace in our lives, at least we can create some tension in people. Okay, what do I do with this guy? I know what Christians are like. I, I know how intolerant they are. I know how they don't care about anybody but the unborn. I, I know this about them. I know that about them. But, but those things don't seem to be true of this person. The, the main thing about them that's, that's most frustrating is they keep saying that Jesus is alive and they're going to live in submission to, to Jesus as Lord. And so he's op- these guys are, you know, this guy is obstinate, but n- nothing else. What do I do? When I was a youth pastor, one of my favorite games to play with the kids was that game where it was like a relay, and the, the kids would run, and uh, they'd run up to, to the other end of the room, and they'd pick up a baseball bat, and they'd put their, and then they'd spin around a bunch of times, and then they'd run back to the, I just loved watching kids fall. Um, <laughs> Literally, not figuratively, right? Uh, it was just hilarious, right? Just the, getting their equilibrium all out of balance. That's kind of what we want to do with the world, right? People have a set under, this is what Christians are like. No, that's not true. I want to live a blameless life above reproach. I want to continue to proclaim that Jesus is, is Lord because God uses lives that are above reproach, that are gospel-focused, that are, that are gospel-fueled to create this, these ideal conditions in which God can use to proclaim, to let us proclaim our testimonies. We can't save people. But by God's grace, by him working through us, he can use us to, to faithfully proclaim the gospel. So as we come to the end here, the groundwork has been laid. Paul's going to give his testimony. There's a tension in the mind of his hearers. They know what they've heard about Christians. They know what they've heard about Paul. But, but Paul's conduct is going to be, has been blameless. And now there's a, recept, a receptivity to hear him. And that's what we want to see in our lives as well. Let's take a moment to pray here.
And, and let, let's pray for a moment for the people who are in our lives, that, that God would protect us from the rumors, that he'd protect us from bitterness and, and apathy. As we think about the people that you work with, as you pe- think about the people that are your neighbors maybe, that, that you just have had some assumptions about how they view you, pray that God, first of all, would just protect you from either bitterness or, or apathy. Again, as, 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 our, as our atheist friend instructed us this morning, how much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? Pray that God would protect us from that. Pray that God would let us live lives that are above reproach and pray that God would give us opportunity to stand before others and share our testimony with them. And we'll talk about the content of our testimony next few weeks. But let's pray for just a moment. And let, me, let me guide us in some, some individual prayer. So, Heavenly Father, first of all, we just come before you to confess our lack of faithfulness in living lives that are above reproach. We pray that you would forgive us for apathy toward the lost. And we pray that you would forgive us for bitterness toward those who have acted towards us with with injustice or unfairness. Father, draw us to the people that you love. And Father, now we also just pray that you would, through the work of your Spirit, allow us to live lives that would not bring reproach upon your name. Lord, let this, the fruit of the Spirit be manifested in our lives. And Father, we just take a moment here to, to mention specific people to you. Specific people that, that we know who do not know you or who have not named your son Jesus as Lord of their lives, who have not trusted in him for eternal life. Lord, we lift up those names to you even now, asking for you to create opportunities for us to share the gospel. Give us the right words to say. Give us the courage, the love to say it. Give us the lives that create tension in the the hearts of, of others as you use these means to draw men, women, children to faith in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.